turn to Psalm 57 this morning in your Bibles. We do not have children's church this morning, but we do have busy bags if your kids need to stay busy during the sermon. And as we prepare for communion this morning. Psalm 57 is where we'll be, taking a one week off of 1 Samuel. It's been a, I've enjoyed it, really enjoyed going from 1 Samuel to the Psalms when we have communion. One reason is we get to read those Psalms of where they're historical Psalms, and they talk about when David was fleeing from Saul, or David was in the cave, or David was in the wilderness. So we get to see, as we're reading these historical narratives of David's life, we also get to see what his journal entries were, right, so to speak, what his diary said, what, what he was praying to God. And so we have these awesome, beautiful songs of faith that we uh, can learn from. And so for Psalm 57, it has a heading. So you, you get to several psalms and there's a heading, um, and it gives a historical reference. And it says to the choir master, according to do not destroy a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Some of those words, we're not sure exactly what they refer to. A miktam is probably a musical term, liturgical term. Um, do not destroy may have been a group of psalms. Um, what's interesting is the do not destroy, which there are several, really refer to allowing and waiting for God's vengeance and not, not enacting your own vengeance. And we know in this psalm, when he is in the cave and, and Saul enters, uh, he... Withholds. He restrains, David restrains himself from killing Saul and then exalting himself to become king. So he, he does not destroy Saul in that instance. We'll be reading the entire psalm, verse 1 through 11. So if you, would, if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, may the words of my mouth 
the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Father, would you raise the dead this morning? Would you awaken the slumbering with your word by, by your Holy Spirit? Change us. Renew us. And show us Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm thankful for the Psalms. The Psalms have been a huge part of my growth as a believer in Jesus. But why are they so important? And why are the Psalms so important in the entirety of the Word of God? Well, which Old Testament book is quoted more in the New Testament than any other? The Psalms. Which Old Testament verse is quoted more in the New Testament than any other? Well, it's a psalm, and it's Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Referencing Jesus, reigning and ruling. Which Old Testament book did Jesus quote when he was being crucified? It was the Psalms. And why, so why are the Psalms the heart of all Scripture? Why are they such a big deal? Well, as Martin Franzman said, theology is doxology. Theology must sing. It must praise. Theology, what we believe about God, cannot remain mute words on a page. But it leaps off the printed page. It exits the mouth. It fills the air with a holy sound. Chad Bird says, in the Psalms, we sing with Jesus, and Jesus sings with us. In a hymn to the Father through the Spirit, amidst a choir of saints and angels, hear our God's words to us that become our words back to God. The Psalms are verbal tears. I love this. The Psalms are verbal tears for the suffering, a steady hand for the wavering a beating heart to the dying. No other biblical book was on the lips of Jesus as he was about to die. So let them ever be on our lips as well, for they are the songs of heaven on earth. And as you read the Psalms, the authors make some assumptions, some assumptions about what it means to be a follower of God, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so what some of those assumptions are, are that, the Psalms assume I have enemies, right? As you read the Psalms, you'll, you'll hear a lot about enemies, enemies of, of God's people. They also assume that I suffer, right? that we go through times of suffering. They assume that I'm a sinner, that we sin, that we fall short of God's glory. They assume that we're waiting for God, that we are to be patient and to wait for Him. They assume that we're often lonely, that we often feel by ourselves, yet that we're never truly alone, that God's there. They also assume that we'll find help from God in times of need. He will be there to help us. And we can even talk to God, even in caves, as we see where David is in this psalm. Well, why was David in a cave? Well, if you recall, this is actually the second time he's been in a cave, the first time he went to the caves was to run away from the Philistines. Remember that scene in Gath when he runs to the king of Gath to get away from Saul 
and he pretends that he's an insane man, and he has spit coming down his beard, and he escapes out of the Philistines. So it was such a bad experience he was having with Saul in, in Israel that he had to get out of Israel and go to his enemy, the Philistines. And so he runs from the Philistines to these caves where he has a hideout and where he assembles sort of a small troop of men and soldiers. That was the first time he was in the cave. And then Saul finds him and, and runs him into another area where he is also in a cave. And this is where we see him crying out to God. Crying out to God from the midst of this cave. So the cave for David is really this metaphor of, of, of a refuge, of a hideaway, of, of a, a place of hiding, a retreat. I don't know if any of you are, f- are fans of caves. Any kids out here that like going caving or going in caverns? I've been in a few caverns. But I've never, I wouldn't say I've ever been spelunking. Do you know that word spelunking? It's exploring a cave. And, you know, I have a little bit of claustrophobia. And uh, I don't think that would be good for me to be in this tight little narrow passageway with a, a headlamp on going through these areas. So I went to college at James Madison University in the Shenandoah Valley. And there's lots of caves in the Shenandoah Valley. My mom actually lives up uh, near Massanutten Mountain where there's a cave system right, literally right behind her, her property. And I remember one of the reasons I don't think I ever want to go spelunking is in college, a freshman year, I believe, a, f- a bunch of friends of mine and, and some others went spelunking. And they, and they left around 6 p.m. in the evening one night. It was like a, a weeknight. And as they were exploring this cave, one of the people in their group uh, basically had an anxiety attack in the middle of this cave. And they, and they just were, were not able to move. Like the claustrophobia was setting in and... They went through this cave system. They didn't get out of the cave. They did get out of the cave system. They didn't get out till the next morning, around 7 or 8 in the morning, as class was starting back up the next day. That's why I don't want to go splunking. <laughs> I wouldn't want to go with a group of people because somebody might have an anxiety attack, but I wouldn't want to go by myself either. I'm just not going to go at all. Actually, the word spelunking, I was just looking this up, it actually comes from a Greek word, uh, spleon. So there you go. There's your Greek word for the day. And so sometimes we have to go spiritual splunking. We have to enter into caves. We have to find these places of retreat and, and hiding to endure the storm that's around us. So in the caves of life, we'll do three things. We're going to see three things that David does in this cave. He cries out. He finds steadfast love in God, and he offers thankful praise. And they're separated, each of those sections, by the word selah, which is this liturgical musical term for for pausing. So in the caves of life, we cry out, verses 1 through 3. Let's look at that part of the psalm first. Well, the idea is that we need help. That's that's why we cry out, right? Because we need help. Look at What does it say in verse 1? Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. He knows he's in a tight spot. He's with his men, and they're being surrounded by Saul and his men, and he's asking God for mercy. Get me out of this tight spot. Help. Is it easy for you to cry for help to God? Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not so easy to cry out to God. Why is that? Why do we sometimes struggle to just say, Lord, I need your help? Why are we afraid to ask for help? 
One of the reasons might be is it because we doubt God's goodness. We doubt that he really is there to care. That it's of his concern even. That he will help us. That can sometimes cause us to not even ask in the first place. Is God there? Will he care? How about fear that we'll be laughed at? Or will be demeaned for being in this weak spot? We don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to be seen as needing help. So we don't ask. We don't seek help. We want to sort of create this facade of righteousness, of uprightness, of a mod, being a model. And when we have to ask for help, that kind of blows that all away. You know, the times I struggled in school the most, I didn't really struggle in school until I got to, to college. And the times I struggled the most in school was when I didn't want to ask for help. I didn't want to ask for help in calculus. And I didn't, do, I didn't do very well in calculus because of that. I stopped asking for help. You will never move forward in the Christian life if you do not ask for help. You do not cry out for mercy. If you ask yourself, why am I continually battling this? Why do I continually struggle with this? And it seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. Ask yourself, have you asked for help? Have you cried out for mercy? To God, first and foremost, and then to others. Well, David continues, he says, be merciful, O God. Be merciful to me. I need help. And he says, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings... I will take refuge. He says, till the storms of destruction pass by. There's been a few times at our house that we've had to go down into our like cross-based basement when a storm comes through, when we get a tornado warning on your phone. It's happened just a few times. Lately, we've had a couple of tornado scares. But we've been down there in that cross-based basement. It's not a very nice place to stay. We don't want to stay. It's not. A, I don't want to enjoy. I don't enjoy being down there. But we know it's probably the safest place in our house to be down there, as these storms pass by, this destruction goes by us, and God Himself becomes this refuge for David. He says, he says "In the shadow of your wings, I'll take refuge." This is where I know I need to be. And caves are a great place to be when storms pass by, as long as you're not in the path of of underground water. It reminds me of a hymn by Anne Steele, who wrote many, many different hymns. She's from the uh, 1700s. She wrote over 144 hymns. She wrote, O my God, my Father, blissful name, thou lovely source of true delight. There's this one that she wrote that Reminds me of this verse. Dear refuge of my weary soul. Dear refuge of my weary soul. Anne Steele's life was marked with suffering and loss. She lost her mother at age three, a potential suitor at age 20, her stepmother at 43, and her sister-in-law at age 45. She was sole caregiver for her father until his death in 1769. Through her life, she exhibited symptoms of malaria, including persistent pain and fever and headaches, And she was bedridden for some years before her death. But her life of suffering gave rise to one of her most enduring hymns, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. 
And in it, like in the lament of the Psalter, we, she passionately yet confidently pours out her soul to the Lord. We can likewise call upon the Lord in our circumstances, and we can, as steel counsels the hurting in this powerful hymn, patiently wait with hope while seeking refuge in the God of mercy. Here's just one verse from that hymn. Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. So she knew suffering. She knew pain. And so did David. He was in the wilderness. He had lots of suffering that he had to endure, even as the anointed one, even as he knew he was going to be king one day, he had a lot of suffering to go through. And so we cry out. And we look to the one who can help us, don't we? He cries out. Look at verse 2. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. I cry out to God Most High. The cry of faith in God alone is what saves. I don't know if you're familiar with the solas that we're going to be talking about at VBS this week as we're going to be teaching the kids. The solas were, the, the five solas were essentially one of the rallying cries of the Reformation. Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. This is how we're saved, to the glory of God alone. But sola fide, sola faith, is really the essence of what we're talking about here. Crying out to God knowing that we can't save ourselves. There's nothing in us, no good work we can do that can save us. Tom Schreiner says, in such moments we sense the glory and the beauty of sola fide. We confess, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We realize that we can enter boldly into God's presence only because of God's grace, through faith in the righteousness of Christ alone. The verse the kids are going to be memorizing this week is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It might be 8 through 10, but I'm just going to look at 8 through 9 here. It says, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And as the more you study the solas, you see how interrelated and, and interlocking they are. They rely on one another. It all depends on Scripture, right? So that's the first one, sola scriptura, right? And then faith in Christ and grace, they all depend upon one another. Sola fide, faith. Faith in what? Not in faith, but in Christ is what saves. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift. It's grace. So those three hold together. And then it obviously points to God's glory and not our own. So he says... I cry out to God most high. He's exhibiting this faith and not himself. What does he say though? To God who fulfills his purpose for me. Notice what David says there. He says, not my purpose for me, but his purpose for me. God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for me. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we willing to submit to the fact that God's plans for you will happen? whether or not they align with your plans. God's plans are going to happen. He has a plan for you. And David, I'm sure, asked that question many times in his life. What is God up to here? I'm in this cave, and I should be 
in a palace. I should be on the throne and I'm here in this cold cave. What is he up to? I'm sure you've asked that question in your life. What is God up to? Why am I going through this? How easy it is, brothers and sisters, to run from God in trials instead of running to Him. Isn't that a temptation? To run away from Him, not to Him, when we're going through trials. And it's hard because we don't, always, we don't see the end. right? We don't see the, what it's going to look like after the trial. It's not always clear to us. Ian Duguid says, the further you go in obedience, the more you see of God's plan. The more you follow him, the more you go in obedience, the more you're going to see of God's plan. But he didn't tell us the end from the beginning. You have to wait to get to the end, to see it. Duguid says, he prefers to lead us step by step in dependence upon him. That's how God prefers to lead us. Look then at verse 3, where David says, He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. You see that? That he's got faith in God and what he's going to do. He will put to shame those who trample on him. His faith is rock solid with God. So that's what we first see, is that he, in the caves of life, we, we can cry out. We cry out to the one who can save. We don't look to ourselves and our situation. We look to, to God. We cry out. Secondly, in the caves of life, we find steadfast love. Here we look at verses 3 through 6. He says, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Notice that's where he starts for this section that he finds help in the form of God's steadfast love. How does he know that? Where does he get that confidence from? He knows that because God has promised to be with him. He's promised to be with him and, and with us no matter what situations we're in. Remember Jesus tells us, Behold, I'm with you even till the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, God promises to be with us in the, dark, in the damp cold darkness of whatever cave we found ourselves in. I'm reminded of David's words in Psalm 139 where it talks about the omniscience, the omnipresence of God, that he's always with us. He's always, you can't go anywhere away from God. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I, say, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be as night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. That even in the darkest of caves, God is with us, and he can see everything clearly. And for those of us who trust in Jesus for our salvation, we know that the cave is actually a place of our salvation, isn't it? What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. There was, that, this was an old 
uh, doctrinal formula that Paul was, was reciting. But notice what he said, he was buried. You remember where Jesus was buried? Luke 23, and then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. Jesus' tomb was essentially a cave. It was a, it was a tomb cut from rock, out of rock. And that's where he was buried. It was a tomb that no one had been laid in. Jesus went into the cave for you and I, and that's where he laid for three days. In the Apostles' Creed, there's a a phrase that we often struggle with. Many people do, and I have in the past. But it says that Jesus descended into hell. And it's been controversial over the centuries, but it's been adopted and it's in the Apostles' Creed. And so how do we understand that phrase, that Jesus descended into hell? Well, one way to, to see it, from as Kevin DeYoung says, is Jesus descended into hell as he suffered the pain and torment of divine wrath. Surely no more terrible abyss can be conceived, writes John Calvin, than to feel yourself forsaken and estranged from God. And when you call upon him, not to be heard. It should be a comfort us in our torment that there is no hell we can face greater than the one Christ endured. That there is no one better to sympathize with our hellish moments than Christ. And that there's no one else able to save us from the wrath of God than he who faced it already. And not only was Jesus buried, we know that he walked out of that tomb. That he walked out victoriously. And so Jesus' cave was a tomb so that our cave would become a stronghold. That our cave would become a refuge. A place where we, we feel his presence and we know he's with us because he walked out of his tomb of death. David continues in this section where he addresses those that are against him. He says in verse 4, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are sharp swords. Charles Spurgeon says, No weapon is so terrible as a tongue sharpened on the devil's grindstone. Yet even this we need not fear. For Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. That's true, though. There is are horrible weapons from people's tongues. And Satan uses those, doesn't he, Can, to condemn us. People's words, maybe even your own words. He brings them to, to your memory to condemn you, and to accuse you. But we have vindication from the Lord. We have a God who refutes the tongue of the devil. Look at verse 5 and 6. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Why? They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. You see, here we get God's justice. Here we see that God returns evil back to evil. He turns evil upon the evildoer. Justice will be done. This is why David restrained from killing Saul. Saul was trying to kill him many different times. He could have killed him, but he restrained. Why? 
because it would have been wrong for him to kill the Lord's anointed, and he waited for the Lord and his timing. You and I need to do that as well in our lives. Don't take vengeance in your hand. Wait for God's justice. He promises to give it in his own timing. And we can do that because his steadfast love is upon us. He, he cares for us and he will be with us. The last thing we can do that we see in this psalm is that we can offer, offer thankful praise. In verses 7 through 11, we can cry out to God. We see his steadfast love. We see the salvation that we have in Christ. And then what we, what we can do, and this is the rest of your Christian life, is to offer thankful praise. To be thankful is the, what the mark of a Christian should be. And we get this from the power of the cross and the resurrection. Look at verse 7. Look, what, look, look, at, look how his, his heart is encouraged. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. He is strong now. So that reminds us that our strength, our resolve, our endurance in the face of all opposition comes from the power of Christ comes from outside of ourselves, comes from the resurrection. And you see in verse 9 that we're to be distinctly thankful as Christians. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I'll sing praises to you among the nations. You know, it's, as a Christian, and just in, in life in general, it's very easy to let ingratitude grow in your heart. Right? To, to, to feel privileged. For the things you have, for the place you are in life, for what God's given you, to expect it and not to be thankful for it, to have that thankfulness diminish over time. So how do we fight against that? How do we fight against that ingratitude? Well, first, never lose sight of how lost you once were. Never lose sight that you were God's enemy until he changed you, until he bought you and died for you. And secondly, never lose sight of how gracious God is. Never lose sight of how lost you were and never lose sight of how gracious God is to you. If you do those two things, you will only grow in thankfulness to God. We've been talking about prayer on Wednesday nights and that will come through in prayer, won't it? When you're thankful, you will pray. One Christian author says, prayer is at the end of the day the natural result of a heart meditating on, cherishing, and delighting in the riches of what Christ has done. That's our motivation, the gospel. And so he says, I propose that our prayerlessness is in large part the result of failing to understand the depth of God's love. That's why we don't pray. We forget his love. But when we remember God's love, when we embrace it, when we understand it, when we are delighting in God's love, prayer ceases to be a duty. It becomes an instinctive, joyful response. An instinctive, joyful response when we know God's love. And so this is what we're supposed to offer as believers, thankful praise, that we are to be worshipful. And so I ask again, when you are in difficulty... Do you run to God or do you run away from God? When you're in difficulty, do you want to worship? When you're in difficulty, do you want to worship? 
You know, worship is never as honest and true when you're in a hard place in your life. That is when worship is the most honest. And that is what God wants most from us. Honest worship, true worship. Worship becomes true worship when you go to God not to be happy or to get things from God, but you worship simply to get more of God. That's where true joy is found. You know, the number one wrong assumption about worship is that when we come to this place, we're here to give something to God. That's the number one wrong assumption about worship. That when you come into these doors, you're here to give something to God. The reason that's the wrong assumption is because, number one, God doesn't need anything from you. God doesn't need anything from you. He has everything already. The number one reason you should come to worship is to receive from God. Not to give something to God, but to receive from Him a gift. That's why I come. That changed my whole perspective on what it meant to worship and to be a Christian. You come to worship to receive. Now, are there things to do at church? Absolutely. There's ways to serve. All this doesn't just come up here miraculously every Sunday morning, right? At 8.30. No, we have to turn on lights. We have to set up. We have to put communion out. We have to put the food out. There's work to be done for sure. But if you come to church only to serve, you will eventually burn out because you're not being fed by God's love. You're not being fed by what He's giving you, what you're receiving from His hand. That's, that should be your number one motivation to be here. God doesn't need anything from us, but we need everything from Him. So how does the Lord's Supper, as we come to the table this morning, how does the Lord's Supper help us worship? As we transition there, let me quote from Dr. Joel Beakey. He says, The Holy Spirit works through the Lord's Supper, the bread and the cup, The Holy Spirit works through the Lord's Supper to pry our fingers loose from sin and this world and fill our hands with the riches of Christ crucified. That's what the Supper does. The Holy Spirit uses the Lord's Supper to pry our fingers loose from sin and the world and to fill it with Christ crucified and the riches of what Christ gives us. Receive this blessing upon you this day, brother and sister. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.